How do libertarians approach the family? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Lauren Hall. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Lauren Hall. Lauren is Professor and Chair of Political Science at Rochester Institute of Technology. She is the author of The Medicalization of Birth and Death and Family and the Politics of Moderation and the co-editor of a volume on the political philosophy of French political thinker Chantal Delsol. She has written extensively on the classical liberal tradition, including articles on Edmund Burke, Adam Smith, and Montesquieu, and she serves on the editorial board of the interdisciplinary journal Cosmos and Taxes, which publishes on spontaneous orders in the social and political worlds. Her current research is on the moral and political implications of healthcare regulations, as well as issues relating to gender and the family. Lauren? Welcome to The Curious Task. Welcome back, actually. We recorded a very early episode together, so it's nice to see you again. Yes, it's great to see you again. So, Lauren, we base each episode on a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, how do libertarians approach the family? And what we're really going to do is explore a paper that you and Andrew Cohen co-authored. And that's actually probably a a good place to start. So at a high level, and of course, we'll, we'll get into more details. But can you explain what your paper really sets out to do? Like, it's basically a tour of some major tentpoles of libertarian thought on and those topics, right, when it comes to family and so on. Yeah. So one of the things that um, Andrew and I wanted to do with this, um, I mean, so so it's an article that's part of a sort of encyclopedia on libertarianism. So it's meant to be a really high level overview of how libertarians can and do think about the family. And the reason that the family is a really interesting topic is that it it in some ways it fits really well into sort of the libertarian thinking about the world in the sense that it's a really important civil institution. It's a primary institution. Um, It's uh, sort of spontaneous. It's part of the spontaneous order tradition. It keeps coming back over and over again. Um, I talk about a lot of those issues in um, uh, my first book was on the family, family and the politics of moderation. And so so, so in one sense, it kind of fits really well into the libertarian worldview if families are doing what they're supposed to be doing or what we sort of hope, quote unquote, that they that they should be doing. Um, we don't have to have as large of a government presence and so on and so forth. But in another sense, the family doesn't fit that well with libertarianism, um, and, or at least it challenges libertarian um beliefs or what I would call maybe simplistic libertarian beliefs mm-hmm. about things like consent and freedom. And, um, and and part of that is because the family is so deeply relational. And so um, and because the family focuses um, or at least one of the major functions of the family is on dealing with the 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 reality of dependence. So there's people in the world who are legitimately dependent on other people through no fault of their own. So children, the elderly, the disabled. Um, And so the family sits in this kind of middle space where it, it challenges our sort of you know, I think libertarians often sort of assume that that everyone is a fully agented adult. Right, right. right. Um, but that's just not true. Exactly. So, so that's why I think it's it's fun to to talk about the family because I think it it uncovers a lot of issues that libertarians haven't really thought about deeply enough. And so there's a lot of really interesting directions that people can take this research that that they haven't yet. 
Yeah, and I'm actually glad you touched on that because I was I was just going to bring up something similar where, you know, at the beginning of the paper, you note exactly that, that the areas of children and the family and so on require more extensive work by libertarians and so on and so forth. And I, I, I get the sense that that's exactly what you mean there. It's not that libertarians haven't worked out the, the two consenting, contracting, 28-year-old, able-bodied people situations in their head. It's, it's all the other stuff too, children, older life cycles, different things. So that, that that's what I understand that to mean there is you think that kind of more specific case study and thinking is, is what's required, if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah. And, you know, I so part of the reason I got interested in the family is, you know, I started looking at some of the earlier attempts to sort of deal with the family from a libertarian perspective. So you have uh, people like Rothbard talking about, um, you know, sort of uh, – um, homesteading children and um, and people like Walter Block uh, and his view on abortion. And so um, and we can go into some of those in more detail, but, but all of those sort of assume this kind of um, fairly high level theoretical kind of um, like where you can just sort of swap out individuals <laughs> um, in some weird way. Right. So like if, you know, if I want to sell my baby to someone, I can just sell my baby and there's no problem with that from like a Rothbardian perspective. And the problem with that, of course, is that there's like the family is intricately involved in human development and not just human development in terms of like, you know, brain development, human moral and political development. So we learn how to trust other people well before the age of three. So you can't just like, like you can't just solve some of these problems by like, like via property rights. I guess that's right. the problem. Right. So a lot of the like tools that libertarians want to use for a lot of the social issues that the family creates just don't work, right? Because children have very specific needs um, and their brains really require um, deep connections with other people. And so it makes it a lot more difficult to deal with some of the problems that I think the early libertarian approaches um, made it seem like you could. Great. Yeah. And we'll get into some of that stuff in more detail as we go along. So like, I, I think, you know, I think we provided a really great context for the listener um, right now to dive into some more specific things. So I'll just note that, you know, of course, your paper does divide sort of like marriage at the top section at the bottom, you guys get into more stuff about children and reproduction and so on. So so we're going to talk about marriage first. Now we're going to get a little more detailed here. So in, in the first section, and again, just like to really outline how you guys uh, see things as you're touring through libertarian thought and discussing that kind of stuff. Um, so the first point I want to stop on is you, you guys ultimately address the fact that ultimately libertarians view marriage as a contract between consenting adults, but then you subdivide that for the context of the rest of the section to what can be understood as procedural and substantive views on marriage in the libertarian classical liberal tradition. So can you basically just elaborate on that and, and, and kind of take us through that context before we get into some more details? Yeah. So there's, so one, one approach to marriage from, from a libertarian perspective is just, you know, if two people can consent to anything that they want to consent to, right? And so if you want to consent to a marriage that um, puts you at the, you know, under the arbitrary authority of your husband, if you want to consent to a, you know, absolutely traditionally patriarchal marriage, that's fine. If you want to consent to a free love open marriage, that's fine too. If you want to consent to a polyamorous uh, marriage, that's fine too. So the procedural focus simply says, you know, did this person consent and was this person capable of consent? And if that's the case, then we we have no business getting involved in this marriage at all. The substantive um, argument, the substantive libertarian argument, and this I don't think has been, it's just starting to be kind of fleshed out. Um, the substantive libertarian would say, well, wait a second. 
it's not just the state that's a danger to freedom. There's lots of things that are dangers to freedom. And mm-hmm. we know for, um, you know, from sort of human history that um, marriage has been the source of coercion and and a lot of unfreedom and abuse. Mm-hmm. So maybe we need to protect people um, from, you know, it's, it's, it's in fact the job's it's the state's job to protect people from illegitimate coercion by other people. And that would, that would be the case in a, in a marriage as well. So the substantive libertarian position says, well, wait a second, maybe we need to um, at least constrain or at least regulate certain kinds of marriages. Um, Maybe minors shouldn't be allowed to get married, but then the question is what's the legal, what, when does somebody become competent to consent to marriage? Right. Uh, Maybe uh, people shouldn't be allowed to marry more than one person, or maybe we should try to figure out, um, you know, how much economic dependence one person can have on another, right? And that gets into, like, really uncomfortable territory that libertarians don't want to get into. Mm-hmm. And, and it's possible that we shouldn't get into them, right? I, so, and, But my point is that there's a gray area in terms of the kind of coercion that marriage makes possible. And I think most people would say physical abuse, sure, the state should step in. But what about deep emotional abuse? What about deep uh, economic abuse? What about the the you know woman with three small children and no job skills who's terrified to leave her husband? Um, those kinds of things I think are much harder for libertarians because we want if if you're just a procedural marriage libertarian, you're just focusing on the moment of consent. You consented to this contract, but marriage is a really long term contract, mm-hmm. and the the way that people operate in that contract change really dramatically over the course of that contract. And so again, just what the state's um, obligations are or what it should be involved in, I think um, when it comes to marriage is really complicated. Right. And and I think and it occurred to me as I was reading this too, I'm, I'm sure you've heard like on, on other topics when libertarians are discussing them, sometimes like the word like the thick and thin approach to libertarianism is sort of like thrown around as a term. So it occurred to me like it seems, and you correct me if I'm wrong, of course, that's sort of fair to say that the procedural is kind of more like a thin approach to libertarianism, whereas like, you know, the substantive is the, is the more thick approach to libertarianism where we're worried about private power dynamics, not just the state and so on and so forth. Um, you know, for the listener who has maybe not been exposed to your specific discussions paper, but is more has been exposed to that thick and thin distinction. Do you think that's kind of like a fair way to chart it? Like, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the other thing too, that makes this also complicated is that the two conflict with each other, right? Mm -hmm. So the, there is, I think something really helpful about, you know, were these people competent to consent on the day that they made this compact, you know, yes or no. Um, and, and in fact, we have some really complicated, there was a great podcast, I'll try to remember the name, but um, that looked at the state's action in removing children from the Yearning for Zion ranch, the the big polygamy, um, uh, polygamist ranch in Texas. And they essentially pulled hundreds of kids out of their parents' homes and thrust them into foster care for months, ripped mm-hmm. them away from their siblings, their mothers. And it was in the service of investigating a really serious sexual abuse claim. Now, it turned out that that claim was actually manufactured, and it turned out that there was an enormous amount of human suffering that was caused by this. And so there's, you know, I don't think that you can go into this on like purely principled grounds where you can say this is the one kind of freedom that we're going to have to defend Mm -hmm. or this is the way that the state should be involved in every single case. Because it's just really complicated. And so removing kids in one situation might make perfect sense. And removing kids in another situation is absolutely awful. And it's very, very hard to know what the right thing is at any given time. And so the thick, the sort of, I think there's there's something to be said for the thin libertarian 
let's trust people's private agreements approach. But there's also a lot to be said for the thick, wait a second, there's a lot that can go wrong behind closed doors. But those two conflict with each other, right? And so that's where you get, I think, um, the how much the state should be involved in trying to eradicate private coercion and, and private abuse is really complicated. And, and that's where, you know, a consequentialist approach ends up being, I think it has to be part of the conversation. Right. And, and you know, of course, libertarians do disagree on many things within themselves uh, on many topics. But one thing I liked is that, you know, in the paper, you bring it back to like, you know, no matter what kind of side of the fence you fall on, as far as that thick or thin or procedural and substantive, um, you know, that libertarians could probably mostly agree with the proposition that at the end of the day, you know, when we're talking about the distinction between how the state runs marriages now which is in most jurisdictions so on is like basically a licensing scheme versus just respecting contracts you know most libertarians could probably agree we should be looking at marriage more in the realm of the contract approach so could, could you explain a bit about that distinction first between the license and the contract and and why you know there's probably either there's some general common ground we could probably all agree on on the contract part yeah so um i think this i mean this is kind of it's in the ether but but part of my thinking on this was informed by an article that um sarah squire and steve horowitz wrote together maybe for fee or something like that but um and and they basically sort of laid out the difference between the licensure approach and the contract approach so in the in the traditional understanding of marriage going back thousands of years um a a marriage is a private contract between two individuals that is accepted by and recognized by the community. And so what that means is that it's a public sort of, it's a, it's a publicly recognized contract. You get together in a public church and you acknowledge this change in status and the community recognizes that change in status too. And it changes the way that the community treats you. Over time, we started layering legal sort of obligations and legal recognition onto that contract. And then what happened later, I mean, really quite late in the, in the proceedings was that marriage turned into a license, which meant that it was permission by the state to get married, as opposed to the much more traditional understanding, which is just merely the state recognizing a contract that two people have privately come to. And so most libertarians, I think, um, and, and I'm glad that you noticed that we tried to do that, which is we, we tried to sort of point out all of the potential complicating factors, but then also tried to point out all of the areas that we think libertarians really are on the same page, right. more or less. So I think most, the vast majority of libertarians would say marriage should simply be a contract. The state should simply recognize marriage, uh, marriage contracts. It shouldn't incentivize them. It shouldn't disincentivize them. It shouldn't privilege one type of marriage over another type of marriage. It should just say, hey, people who sign this kind of document together are agreeing to these kinds of things. Um, in an ideal world, we would we would undo a lot of the state incentives and the state meddling. We'd get rid of state licensure um, for marriages, and we would get rid of a lot of the meddling with um, like tax credits and various kinds of welfare restrictions on whether you're married or unmarried. Um, at the same time, the, the problem becomes that People, I mean, the entire tax code in the United States, at least, is like very much embedded in the question of whether you're married or not. Right. Um, and it's really a social security. I mean, all of these benefits that we expect from the government are are highly tied to our mar marital status. So I, I think most of us would say that simply burning it down and starting with just a purely contractarian approach is going to be hard to do. Um, but most libertarians, I think, would say that that would be the ideal. If you're stuck with a licensure system, then, of course, that changes the dynamic when we start talking about other forms of marriage. So questions about same-sex marriage, um, polygamy. Um, if 
if marriage is simply a contract, it's a lot easier to handle those problems than it is if if marriage is a license, meaning that the state is giving you permission to do this thing. Um, then I think you you drop yourself fully into the culture wars, and it's going to be much harder to get out. Right. And and before we drop into the culture wars, I just want to, one point you, you 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 touched on that I did want to get into a little deeper here. I mean, of course, the paper doesn't dwell on this, but obviously, like you know, to put it in the paper, I know you guys thought about it clearly. So I want to get into it more here, which is like you know th- that tax situation, right? You know, there's that classic sort of uh, saying, you know, if you if you tax something, you're going to get less of it, and if you subsidize it, you're going to get more of it, and and that kind of thing. So again, I think that's sort of a general area where libertarians can agree that you know some good steps would probably be to like minimize all these keyhole and sort of weird pocket benefits and disincentives when it comes to marital status because I guess when you start thinking about it there really are a lot of ways that intended or not like you know the state does a lot of social engineering when it comes to the family and family structure and so on so you guys must have researched a bit of that and seen that so I'm glad it made it into the paper because I think that's like a really sort of unseen sort of thing about social structure I think yeah and when it, the tax code's interesting because it it both incentivizes and disincentivizes marriage in really complicated kinds of ways and so you know the tax code is obviously meant to sort of incentivize marriage but then it makes it difficult if you have two earners because the, there's a second earner penalty in the US tax code at least um and then one of the things that for example um fundamentalist uh polygamists and for example the American West have um they've taken advantage of the way that for example welfare policies disincentivize marriage so they make it actually Actually, you get fewer welfare benefits if you're unmarried or if you're married, I should say. Um, and so a lot of these polygamous households are essentially set up on maximizing welfare benefits. They call it bleeding the beast. Um, and so so there's people who actually take advantage of the, the sort of way that the state is trying to sort of like manipulate people's behaviors in really complicated ways that are ultimately really not working. Um, and so, again, that's an argument for just like we should just get out of it altogether. We're not we don't even have a coherent way in which we engineer marriage. Right. <laughs> so, like, or, like, you know, try to incentivize it. So we should just stop doing it. Right. Altogether. That makes a lot of sense. And of course, you know, so far we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, marriages between two people and, and that kind of thing. And like the consent, you know, the, the license two people get a license versus the contract, you know, approach where people, two people agree on something. But, you know, of course that that's very libertarian. As you said, you know, it's very important that we brought in our thinking because your paper did mention this as well. It didn't dwell on it, but again, worth mentioning here that, you know, there's that externality discussion that I think is very important to consider. So um, again, what are the kind of external Personalities that can come from, uh, you know, a more contract approach, you know, as far as marriage and so on and so forth in your minds. And what are the kinds of things that, at least in your reading, you found that uh, when libertarians or other folks do step into the ideas of externalities of marriage, uh, as far as society is concerned, what are the kinds of things you found there that were interesting? Yeah. So, I mean, the the problem with, with marriage as a pure contract is that it's very different from other kinds of contracts. Um, it's meant to be more um, long-term than like a contract to sell a car or something like that, right? It's meant to be at least, right? I mean, the, the goal is something like, I don't know, life. I mean, maybe, maybe that's not the goal. But I mean, one of the things we mentioned in the paper is that if you take a contract approach, you could open the door to a variety of sort of timeframes for marriage. So you could say, you know, we have a five-year renewable contract for our marriage, right? right. Every five years, we come back together and say, we, we do want to keep doing this. Other people could have covenant marriages where you say, no, this is for life. We can't, you know, like we have to go through three years of you know, hardcore therapy before we even think about, you know, dissolving this, whatever that situation is. Um, the, the problem, though, becomes that particularly when marriages result in children, um, you create externalities 
automatically um, when the contract dissolves, right? So when marriages fall apart, um, you have to make decisions about what happens to those children. And that's true of all of the resources that people have combined in a marriage, but houses aren't really harmed. I mean, their market value is harmed, but like they're not physically harmed by divorce. Children are absolutely harmed by Mm -hmm. divorce. Mm -hmm. So the way that you divorce and the way that you split custody matters deeply for how those children um, experience it. And so the, so again, it's a peculiar type of marriage or it's a peculiar type of contract. And so part of what we were trying to look at is, well, like you want to, I mean, and, and this I think gets into the sort of gray area where libertarians struggle a little bit, which is, what do you do about those children who are very dependent on their parents' decisions um, and who are dependent through no fault of their own, but the result, either the, the success or the failure of this marriage, and I don't just mean like the success or failure in terms of whether you stay together or don't stay together, because I think some marriages are more successful if they were, if they end in divorce, right? Like you right. better off if you are out of this relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the sort of health or illness of a marriage, right, has a lot of impact on those children. It has a lot of downstream impacts on those children's um, financial and economic success, mm-hmm. their psychological success. Um, and so we know, for example, from the the really basic economics, right, the people who are the most at risk of poverty are elderly women and women with children, single women with children. And so out of wedlock child rearing, um, single motherhood via divorce, those are like sort of morally neutral things in one sense, but they have really deep externalities for how we think about how to structure welfare policies, whether we want to support a universal basic income or something like that, because ultimately there's a bunch of people, namely the children, who ne- who didn't choose to be in that situation. They didn't consent to this. It wasn't, it's not their personal responsibility that they, that they have to be sort of that they, that caused this, they can't pull themselves by their own bootstraps. Um, so, you know, the, so I think that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of trying to figure out ways to, um, look at, you know, the, the functions that we think families and, and marriage in particular should do, um, and what role the state plays when that doesn't work. And, you know, and again, this, this, creates another set of sort of concerns. I mean, one of the things I see in a lot of the internet sort of chatter about various aspects of social justice questions mm-hmm. um, involves certain kinds of, um, you know, middle-class privilege. And one of the things that the middle-class does is it gets married and it stays married. Right. So marriage rates are much, much higher among the middle-class. Marriages persist much higher at, uh, at much higher rates in the middle-class. Um, and some of that is that it's much more stressful to be married if you're poor. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's obviously issues that erode um, stability at the, um, at the lower income levels. But if we know that marriage just generally has a stabilizing effect, there's economies of scale, you're you're pooling incomes, you're pooling resources, um, it's hard for the state to take a totally neutral approach if you see the kinds of economic benefits that marriage creates. So the question is then, should the state step in and try to help create those kinds of benefits for people who are not married? Um, because many people are not married um, through no fault of their own, um, people fleeing abusive homes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or do we try to incentivize marriage, try to get more people into that into that middle bucket? And I, I think we've demonstrated that that is not a great path, but it's right. just not clear what else we do. And, and so this is why I, I guess I tend to sort of like, 
I tend to think maybe something like a basic minimum income or something would mm-hmm. help those those folks at the at the lower level who can't take advantages of those economies of scale. But I know the economics on the basic minimum income are not great, so I'm sort of waffling here. But anyway, mm-hmm. that but that's the difficulty is that I think we we know that there's there's very real benefits to marriage um, that that benefit children and just the economic uh, the economics of the unit itself, but there's disparities in who gets married and who stays married. And those disparities contribute to patterns of social injustice. And it's not clear what the state can do about it. Right. And, and yeah, and, and connecting to the thought of like sort of the idea, because the word gray areas come up a lot here and like, you know, ultimately some blind spots for certain straightforward libertarian thinking. And I totally agree with that vibe because, you know, uh, on the one hand, I know a lot of libertarians who do, of course, still believe in a state like, you know, so we're excluding the anarchists for a second. You know, they when we talk about family and structure and externalities in society, they sometimes often like run away screaming from the conversation because I think, well, I'm not a conservative. I'm not thinking of that. I'm thinking about the individuals. But as you were po- correctly pointing out, that gray area right if you are a subscriber to libertarian thought you do uh you are supposed to at least think of like something that two or three or a group of people do if it has a direct negative impact on other people that's the third party harm situation right so you're absolutely correct we can't leapfrog over sort of like well i'm not worried about social structure that's more of a conservative thing when in the middle like you said in in many cases you have children and even if there's not children involved like the way a marriage happens or the way it's structured can have many third party effects i think that's very important to consider as well um, and, and, uh, before we had to break, I just want to wrap up this, this section with one thing here too, because I think if I remember correctly, that's why I made it to notes. I think this was mentioned in the paper, either that, or it just occurred to me, but even if libertarians do agree, um, that, you know, we should head to a more contractarian approach, even that seems to me to not be as directly straightforward either. Cause I find that many libertarians often thinks, ah, you know, a contract, people agree on something. But if we do move this conversation to contract law, it is also possible as you were sort of pointing out at the very top of our conversation that there are invalid marriages or a contract can be looked at as unjustifiable or invalid based on power dynamics or whatever. So contract law itself is not just, at least, I guess what I'm trying to say, contract law itself is not just people agree to something. There's also rules to how contracts are formed and so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that I see, um, I see a lot of sort of like modern media. Um, I've seen a couple articles in the last like six months or so that have talked, you know, about how polyamory is kind of the future of, um, you know, of marriage or of sort of relationships. And I'm like, really? Um, not from any moral perspective, but it's just, it's really hard. Like it's really hard and it's really complicated. And particularly when you take like, so I think people think like, well, it's just whatever contract you come up with. Well, okay. But but take, for example, three or four people living in an intimate relationship together, right? They decide to call that a marriage. Right. Well, one of them has a kid from a former marriage. Two of them create a, they create a bio kid and then another one adopts. Well, when they split up or what happens when one of them splits up but wants to retain a relationship with the children from that marriage or that relationship? Um well, the contract isn't going to stipulate that ahead of time because you don't know what children are going to result from this marriage and the, you know, this re- cluster of relationships. And so there, there's there's an argument that can be made that you would actually get more state involvement in adjudicating those kinds of disputes because it's so complicated that you're just going to end up in litigation for just, I mean, you could use like a private arbiter or something, but, right. but either way, you once you get into threes and fours and fives and you get into multiple people owning property and mm. owning um you know various kinds of retirement accounts and then you add in children i mean this is not a simple contract right absolutely and so this is not going to be a situation where people say oh the state doesn't have to be involved at all i can guarantee you the state's going to be involved and it's going to be involved in a very ugly way and we actually know that the one of the most arbitrary kinds of court 
court systems in the United States, at least, is family court. Mm-hmm. So if, if you don't want to get caught up in the in the teeth of the state, um, it there's no argument that like a purely contractarian form of marriage that allows kind of whatever people want to contract to is going to get you there. Right, absolutely. Because yeah, contract law is a whole body of law into itself. It's not like you just sever that from reality just because you say, oh, I have a contract over here, right? Right, right. And just to end off the section here before we head to break, what are some of the best or strongest criticisms against the sort of contract, uh, you know, contract marriage approach that you think? I mean, I'm not saying you agree with them. I'm just saying, what do you think if you if you want to leave someone with, hey, if you're a libertarian, you're all gung ho about the contract stuff, what would you say is, but you really ought to think about this as well? Yeah, well, there's a so there's two there's a sort of maybe um, just practical objection and then the more substantive uh, objection. The practical objection is just. Look, we live in a world where marriage law is so, and I I mentioned this earlier, but it's so tightly tied up with every other form of law. And so some libertarians have this kind of idealistic view that you just get rid of marriage licensing and everything's fine. But you'd have to undo Social Security in the United States. You'd have to undo the tax law. You'd have to undo medical benefits going from the, the, at least in the U.S., the federal all the way down to the state system. You'd have to, like, it would just have such enormous ripple effects that it's not a simple legal change, right, where you just get rid of state licensing of marriages. It's a ripple effect that touches every single part of U.S. law. Mm. Um, so this is very, very complicated. So that's the practical argument, that we we would need something like a gradualist approach if we're going to get back to a purely contractarian kind of marriage. The more substantive argument, and, and the, the person I've seen make this, I think, most um, eloquently is a woman named Jennifer Robach-Morse, and she's... Um, a former libertarian, she's a sort of conservative libertarian, but she she argues that family law actually needs to be considered um, something like property law um, by libertarians, which means that it's it's the sort of it's part of the rule of law structure that makes free markets and free societies work. And you can't be relative, like you can't simply be neutral with regard to how families are formed. Mm. So from her perspective, there's a certain baseline for what humans need and expect and how they develop that is formed in families. And families are the backbone of how people learn to live in societies and trust in societies and, and learn to be voluntary cooperators. And so from her perspective, in the same way that you can't just be neutral with regard to systems of property rights... Like there are some systems of property rights that work better than others. Um, her perspective is there's some family forms that work better than others. There's some family law systems that work better than others. And so she says, you know, this this purely contractarian approach is just not it doesn't it doesn't acknowledge the central role that the family actually plays in creating free societies. And so libertarians need to actually jettison the idea of a purely contractarian approach to marriage and the family broadly. And really needs to take a closer look at what kinds of families fulfill the functions that we want um, in a free society in the same way that we look at various kinds of property rights um, structures. Right. And with that, I think, I think as I was saying, we'll go to break. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Lauren Hall today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Chris Rondolo, 
Christopher McDonald and Randy T. Simmons. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Lauren Hall today. So, Lauren, I think the first half of the conversation was great. We set the context for our conversation and also talked about the first major chunk of the paper we were exploring, which is on marriage and so on and so forth. Of course, naturally, as we were going through that, uh, we touched on children and so on and so forth. And and now we're actually going to dive fully into that because the last chunk of the paper really focuses on on those sorts of topics. So as I started with the marriage section, you know, if we're going to talk about children, reproductive rights and so on, let's, let's start first things first. As you guys introduced in the paper, what's the general libertarian take or takes on reproductive rights and children and so on and so forth? Just tour us about what you found when it comes to children. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's easier to start with areas of commonality first and then because things sharply diverge. Um, I think most libertarians think that people should have the right to have children or not have children. It's one of the most intimate and most um, you know, foundational rights that people have. And so uh, most libertarians are against, for example, forcible sterilization, as we saw during eugenics. Most libertarians are um, against the state forcing you to have children. Um, there's some nuance there, which we, we can talk a little bit about the abortion debate, um, but I'll sort of maybe bring that back up toward the end. So I think, you know, the yeah, should the state be involved in whether you have children or not? No, I think most libertarians would agree on that. Um the the more complicated question is maybe the secondary question of what role can the state can or should the state play in your parenting decisions once those children exist. Um, so maybe I'll take that second and maybe I'll back up and talk briefly about the abortion question, because I think this is where there are there's a fair amount of libertarian agreement in practice, but a lot of theoretical disagreement. And I think that's actually a pretty interesting thing that makes libertarians maybe more thoughtful on this question than other groups, which, which I think, I think, so I think we do this relatively well in some sense. Um, And so the, the basic libertarian principle, I think most libertarians, not all, but most libertarians would say um, the state should not be involved in a woman's decision about whether to carry out or whether to finish a pregnancy. And that's just something that should be essentially between a woman and her doctor. And even libertarians who are not, who who believe the fetus has personhood rights at some point in the pregnancy um, will often say it's still not like, yes, we think the fetus has personhood rights, but the cost of getting the state involved is so high and the unintended consequences could be so great that it's that it just needs to be a protected right, even if we're uncomfortable with some of the marginal outcomes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, or outcomes on the margin. So uh, at the same time, I think a lot of libertarians have grappled and and maybe more honestly than other people with the problem of um, viability. Uh, So you see people like Walter Block who say, you know, the um, a woman has an absolute right to terminate pregnancy until the age of viability, which is anywhere between 22 and 24 weeks. So it's a little after halfway through a pregnancy. Um, And at that point, she has the she has a duty to find someone to sort of homestead the baby, right? Like adopt the baby. Um, so she, she can induce labor, but she has to, she can't just abandon the child, right? Because at that point it's a person, it's a legal person. The problem with that approach, of course, is that development that we talked about earlier, which is that a 22 to 24 week old fetus is in real trouble. 
you have to have a very specific kind of hospital that can take that child. It's going to require months and months and months of stays in a NICU or some other kind of specialized um, uh, hospital ward to get to the point where it can flourish in some way. Um, and many of them don't. Uh, there's a very, very high rate of death for, for infants born that, that soon. So it's not quite as simple as philosophers saying at 22 weeks, you just homestead the kid and it goes off somewhere else, right? That's millions of dollars in medical bills to start with. And then you've got all sorts of other problems too. So, um, but I do think that like there, there is this problem. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly as you get into the third trimester, um, I think libertarians are much less comfortable with, with anything like abortion on demand. Um, now, I also think most libertarians would say those are really rare. It's actually very rare that that happens. And so, again, maybe this is a situation where we are okay with um, failing morally in, other, in, in one area in order to avoid worse harm when it comes to state intervention and private medical decisions. Um, but so, yeah, so I think from, again, libertarians are sort of that, that question of when a fetus becomes a person is crucial for the libertarian perspective. And it's not something that we have a good answer to, and it's not something that anyone has a good answer to. So it's not like libertarians are failing. We just, nobody knows at this point, like how to answer that question effectively. So that's sort of the, the, um, the libertarian approach to abortion. Um, I think most libertarians would say that you should, you know, adoption should be um, much more freely, like it should be much easier to adopt children. We add a lot of regulations. We should free up the market, quote unquote, uh, babies to make it easier for babies to find um, homes. And in reality, there's actually not enough babies for the people who want them. But especially mm -hmm. when it comes to older children, making adoption easier. Right. Um, uh, in my co-author, um, and I, uh, I wish we could pipe him in briefly, uh, Andrew Jason Cohen has written a wonderful paper on parental licensure, um, and he takes the very unique libertarian position that given the harm that parents can do to children and the harm that um, unprepared or unwilling parents can do to children, uh, there might be an argument for a really basic kind of state licensure for parents where you just say, you know, like really simple, right? Um, can you, you know, adequately take care of this kid? Do you, are you suffering from really serious mental illness or other or addiction? Um, the goal would be reunification with the parent as much as possible. Um, so the goal isn't to just facilitate the state removing children from their homes, but right. it's to make sure that children are not exposed to irreversible damage. Right, right. From a very young age. And, and that's um, so that's his part of his critique of the foster care system and the the sort of the way that we the unrestricted right to have children from from his perspective um, creates a lot of harm. Right. And so that might be a situation where the state actually does have a duty to step in and say, look, if you are in the throes of a serious heroin addiction, um, maybe we can take your baby temporarily while you get clean. And then we will hand her back as soon as you're safe, right? Um, but just sort of assuming that all people have the right and capacity to have children whenever they want might be a little bit, um, that might be sacrificing children's rights for parent, in favor of parental rights. So he's a sort of libertarian outlier in that respect, but I think it's actually a really important argument for libertarians to think about um, because 
of the 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 enormous pow- power that parents have over their children's um, psychological, emotional, and economic outcomes from infancy onward. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And of course, yeah, I think there's a lot to be talked about there as well. Like, you know, there's a lot to be said for that argument. But of course, there's also the counter argument that, you know, are we then opening the door for bureaucratic scope creep? Like all those things come into play. I'm not going to we can't answer that here. But I think that is definitely, as you were saying, at least an area that should be discussed, because the idea that a parent just has a default right to the child um, just by simply having it uh, is, is one discussion. And actually, I, that actually provides an interesting pivot point here. Before I get into some other questions, um, you know, you say in the paper that a tough question for libertarians to deal with is the particularist problem, or in other words, why that particular child has a relationship with that particular adult. It sounds like we're sort of treading into that here. So I wanted you to elaborate on what that particularist problem is and why you think it, what libertarians think on it and why you think we should think on it more, basically. Well, I, I don't think we have a good answer for that. And I actually don't even think libertarians have a good position on this. Um, I So I know Andrew does not think that biological relatedness is um, is or can be the foundational sort of reason why a parent is allowed to steward this particular child as opposed to another child or right. something like that. Um, I have a background in evolutionary theory. I having had three bio kids of my own, I do think that there's a, a unique sort of harm. And I don't know how to, I haven't thought through this clearly enough, but um, I do think there's a, a, a unique kind of harm involved when a, when a child is removed from a, a biological parent. Hmm. Now, whether that's a harm that we should take seriously, I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's a serious one, but I don't know whether that creates a right or, or something like that. On right, the part right. Um, so the question is, well, yeah, how do we justify our, our stewardship of these little people, right? So I had three kids and simply by virtue of the fact that I gave birth to them in a hospital, I just all of a sudden had something like ownership rights over them, right? I could bring them home almost without supervision, like nobody called to check up on me. They just gave me these three babies and I took them away. Um, That's sort of interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet you can take care of a child for years and not have a legal right to that child. And in fact, that happens all the time that that children get ripped away from deeply loving caregivers simply because those caregivers don't have a biological connection to those children or don't have a recognized legal right to that child. Right. So I don't have a good answer to that. Um, And I don't think libertarians do in general. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of grandparents tied up in courts right now who spent many years with children all all of a sudden for some bio people to come back in the picture and say, well, that's my child. Like that, I think there's a good use case for exactly what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't think we have, yeah, I don't think we have a good answer to, I don't think anyone has a good answer to this. So this isn't a situation that I think libertarians fall down worse than any other group. Mm. We just don't have a good handle on. And and some of this, of course, is that the, the default is the species default to a certain degree, right? Which is that for most of human history, maybe all of human history, um, the people who raise kids are almost always the people who birthed those kids, right? Like that's at least mothers usually. Right. Um, now, at the same time, though, we have a lot of human history involved in what um, uh, primatologists call allo-mothering or allo-parenting, which is actually the act of other people who are unrelated to or not the direct parents of the child, essentially playing a primary role in raising that child. Mm-hmm. And so that's aunts and uncles and grandparents and best friends. And so those there's always been network effects 
in families. Absolutely. Yeah. And so then what you do with those networks and how much legal rights those people should have or how much they can have, that becomes really, really complicated. So I don't have any good answers. Um, I tend to veer toward the, uh, like, as a really basic baseline, right? If you gave birth to a kid, that gives you some kind of say, but it it's certainly not an absolute right. It's certainly not something that you can't um, abdicate or, you know, lose just Mm -hmm. by being not good at the job that you've been given. Um, I think that, you know, the, the, the question of, um, fathers is even more complicated because we, we do want fathers in their children's lives. Um, but the, the really complicated, and, and again, like we know, for example, that having a present father in your life has all sorts of downstream effects on your, your success as sort of a person down the road. Um, and yet we have not really grappled with the complexity of the world that we live in now, which is that like a very large percentage of children will not be born into a stable nuclear family right. with the father living in the home. And so you have step parents and you have all sorts of other people sort of in the mix. And that complicates the legal picture. It complicates the developmental picture. Um, and you know, from my perspective, I think the, you know, family courts should facilitate loving adults playing roles in children's lives as much as possible. But given the dynamics of relationships, that's often just not possible. So um, I haven't answered your question. No, it's a, no, it's a good exploration, though. I mean, for anyone, again, for anyone <laughs> with that very thin libertarian perspective, it's like, you know what, uh, property and contracts takes care of all that stuff. Well, maybe, these are the kinds of things they should think about. These aren't flipping answers, because imagine tying yourself into everything you just talked about as a contract dispute. I mean, good luck with that, right? So there's definitely a role for the other stuff you were talking about. But but actually, we've kind of been circling uh, a couple of um, or another point I should say, which is because you mentioned the term stewardship a couple times, and then you know you also we did touch on the fact you know, and some people do seem to have the default view that okay, you've had a child, it's effectively your property, good for you. Which so again, you mentioned there's two sort of contrasting approaches there as far as you know libertarians and what they view as the proper duties and so on and so forth when it comes to children, which is that stewardship approach and that propertarianism approach. So can you actually now directly contrast those and, and what's that what's that about? Because there seems to be two diverging schools of thought there in terms of duties and so on. Yeah. So the um you know we, we kind of trace it back to Locke. Locke has a, a stewardship uh John Locke that is has a stewardship view um and and essentially argues that parents are responsible for stewarding children into adulthood. And then at that point, you know, the adult children are sort of just on their own. They can, um, they can choose with whom they associate. Um, and that view essentially argues that parents have rights over their children. And uh, there's a clear reason for why those rights are in place, which is to help the children become sort of rational adults. So the children's interests are really primary on the stewardship view and the parents' interests are sort of, um, are sort of secondary. Um, Now, uh, and Andrew has thought about this more deeply, but, but there's a sort of argument about what parents what what is required of parents, right? What makes a good parent on a libertarian view? Um, and this is another area that I think uh, libertarians have not thought that deeply about. So one argument is that parents have an obligation to do what's in the best interest of the child. And um, I think Andrew rightfully pushes back against that and says, 
um, that cannot be the standard for good parenting, right? Because what, what's in the best interest of the child might be really expensive music conservatory lessons that cost the family $100,000 a year or something like that. And the, and the family can't afford that. Uh, and so, you know, my, the, so you, you can't be obligated to bankrupt yourself just out of the best interest of the child. So that can't really be what we're talking about. But then that creates again, and I hate to keep using this <laughs> to phrase the gray area, right? But there is this gray area in terms of of what what constitutes good parenting and and what parents are required to offer their children. Um, so my children would have been much better off if I'd started them in violin or piano when they were four years old. I did not. Um, so they will probably never be musical prodigies. Have I have I closed off an opportunity for them in the future? Probably. Is that a moral failing? Maybe. But am I obligated to make sure that they have the opportunity to become musical prodigies? Probably not. So it's just not clear what what obligations parents really do have to their children, mm-hmm. other than the negative obligations: don't abuse them, don't you know, don't physically harm them, don't undermine you know, don't don't psychologically abuse them, um, provide them with food, right? I mean, those are sort of like really basic ones. But right. so. So, yeah, I guess we haven't, we don't really know, we haven't even really firmly laid out what exactly it is um, that, that parents are supposed to be doing. Um, so that's kind of some wrinkles in the, in the stewardship approach. Another ver- version of this is what's called the um, propertarianism perspective. And that's the idea that parents essentially have ownership rights over their biological children and maybe also over kids that they adopt. Um, and that's like the more, um, at least I associate this view with like the Rothbardian kind of approach, which is that, um, if, if the child is a kind of form of property and you're sort of your property rights in that child decline as the child gets older. So as the child grows in maturity and it's, it, uh, the child is capable of self-ownership, your share in the child sort of decreases, right? Um, and so uh, the child will eventually gain full ownership, full self-ownership when he or she is like 18 or whatever. Um, and so that would mean that um, parents could sell their children, right? Rothbard makes this argument. Um, and so if, if a child is a form of property, um, that's a different kind of view of what parents owe their children than the stewardship approach. Um, so while the stewardship approach seems to me the more the more sensible one, it still runs into that question of what does it mean to be a steward of a child? How are we defining what that stewardship means? But then the propertarian position also falls into kind of uncomfortable kinds of spaces. Um, And in some ways it it has been clouded because the, the, the current consensus is that the, the history of chattel slavery in particular has made it so difficult to talk about owning other people that, that position is probably a non-starter, even if it might have some something to contribute to the stewardship approach or vice versa. But um, but essentially the the idea would be that you could have um, you know, more a propertarian approach would allow you um to have things like adoption markets and and things like that. Um and so again, Andrew's done more work on adoption, um, but part of part of where the propertarianism approach might make some sense um, is that it's currently very, very difficult to adopt children um, in the United States, but also globally. Um, And it's very, very expensive. And most of that money goes to third-party people. 
And so if you actually allowed people um, to sort of, you could even have like a child share kind of situation, um, you would actually open up the market in potentially beneficial ways by allowing more children to be matched with permanent homes. Now, there are going to be potential abuses, and so you'd have to structure it carefully. You'd have to watch for how the market is actually operating and so on and so forth. But but that would be one advantage of the propertarian approach is that by creating a kind of market, uh, you might ease the backlog of adoptions and allow children to find homes that – because right now we, we do have a mismatch between parents who are parenting children they don't want to parent, children who are in homes with parents who are not doing a good job, whether they want a parent or not, and then parents who want to be parents and who cannot find children to parent. And so markets could be a way to ease that disconnect. Right. And in that mix too, especially as as certain children age and they get to different levels of consciousness and maturity, you also have children in the mix too who very well might be very validly saying, I don't even want to be here anymore. And that's totally fine too. So that's something that needs to be considered as well. And in either case, certainly a gray area, as you said, and that's okay, because I also agree with your general theme that libertarians do need to think more about this stuff. Because for for example, if someone's leaning more towards that propertarian approach, then you say, okay, well, property law isn't just what's yours and mine. It's a whole body of law that takes off in many different directions. So there's a lot more complications than just saying, hey, like, you know, it's just a piece of property. So that makes a lot of sense. And as our time is winding down here, I want to touch on one more a couple more general points here because um, we've touched on it but didn't get into it deeply. Sort of like I, I just want to do a, a word on the age of consent situations. I mean like I don't want to turn this into an age of consent podcast. There's enough of that online. But but really I just kind of wanted to know if you had any additional thoughts or anything you wanted to add toward the end because I mean off the bat that is obviously a gray area and a moving target and every child's different and so on and so forth. So I'm sure we all agree on that. But I just want to know your sort of thoughts on that if you want to tour through any like different sort of competing school of thought or anything like that on age of consent. Yeah. Well, and this is where I think it it becomes, again, just so much more complicated than a lot of the the simple sort of like, you know, this is the age of consent. That's the end. Absolutely. Um, and and so this is where, you know, one thing that we mentioned in the paper is that um, I think you do have to take culture into consideration. I think that, you know, when you when you have situations. So we know, for example, and this, again, goes back to the development piece, um, when when people get married too early, marriages tend to fall apart very quickly. Mm. Um, and we also know physically that having children too early can be really physically um, and medically devastating for girls. Um, and so there's, I think there is an, a role for the state in trying to prevent um, very early reproduction, um, whether there's also a role for parents to do that. I mean, that that civil society seems to be the first level of defense. Um, but then the state might be, maybe should step in, um, in, in obvious, uh, you know, egregious cases. Um, but, but then, you know, again, this is something that we point out in the paper that, you know, marriage laws and consent laws can be, you know, people, people often sort of criticize Southern states that have very low ages of consent, particularly for marriage. Um, there, there were some states until recently that allowed, um, 15 year olds to get married with their parents' consent. And I think we can all agree that that's not good, right? Um, but those those laws are in part a response to the recognition that children are in fact sexually uh, active at that age. And so if you do have a child at the age of 15, it might be better to solidify the relationship between the mother and the father um, and find a way for that those two people to form a family. Now, 
there's a lot of arguments against that too. But the problem is that this is not going to be a situation where you can just take a test and determine that 17 or 18 or whatever is the age of consent. Right. Because we know that the human brain is developing, the human brain and the human body is developing over many, many years. Um, and in fact, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, for for women, the probably healthiest age, quote unquote, to have children is between the ages of like 21 and 26 or something like that. Um, so most of us are having kids way too old, actually, at least uh, those of us in the uh, middle class. Um, but we, so we know that like really early reproduction is not that great. Um, but it is, it, yeah. So anyway, to, to go back to sort of the, the, what we touch on in the paper, which is pretty brief. Um, I think this is an issue that's going to have to be very culturally mediated. And so the age of consent probably will differ based on the situation that people live in. Um, probably in agrarian and less developed areas, the age of consent will be lower simply because that tends to be the cultural norm in those kinds of societies. Um, whereas once you get into situations where women are high, more highly educated, where women tend to be more economically independent, um, the age of consent will naturally rise. And that seems to be sort of how, so there's a kind of economic um, link between how we think about age of consent. Um, but one of the things that we, that we, and this will be my last point on this. One of the things that I think we, we try to tease out in the article and we don't go into a lot of detail is that age of consent for reproduction is different from age of consent for marriage. And, and there, we might need to treat those two things separately. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because the, the kinds of, uh, you know, the kinds of rational, development that needs to be in place in order to have a successful marriage um, is somewhat different from the the kind of, um, uh, especially when you have a supportive family, right? People can have children at a younger age and be able to navigate that if they have a supportive family. Mm -hmm. So I think, I guess we have to untease those two things. Um, And I think we do have to think a little bit less, less abs in, in less absolute terms about what a a true sort of age of consent should be both in terms of age of consent for um age of consent for sex age of consent for reproduction and then age of consent for marriage i think those are three different types of ages of consent and we have not done a great job of like teasing out when and i don't have an answer for this but like what the ideal age for any of those things are and they're often bound up together but they actually are separate things and i think we need to think about them as separate things. And I think libertarians should think more seriously about the the duties and obligations that people take on when they become sexually active, when they become reproductively active, and when they when they choose to marry. Because again, I think there's just a different set of skills and develop and rational development that needs to take place in those three areas. And they're not necessarily the same. Right. Yeah, no, I yeah, I completely agree with that. And as you said, separating out those three areas is very important as well. Like, I think another problem is that, as you're saying, the sort of absolutist approach sort of makes, okay, this is the age and then like a whole floodgate opens and all this stuff happens. Whereas, for example, and I think this is actually a good thing, like in Canada and Ontario law, I might be getting the numbers kind of mixed up, but the general principle is, for example, the age of consent is something like 18 and, and up and so on. But there's a close age 16 year old exemption for sexual relations between people that are within two years of each other so it kind of unteases sort of this idea that like you know obviously you know if if a 25 year old wants to have relations with a 16 year old that's a problem for various reasons but the idea is like you've heard in some of these jurisdictions you know the state's not busting down the door if an 18 year old is doing something with a 17 year old for instance so it kind of there's a lot of nuanced ways to handle this type of thing and, and i think ultimately i agree with your theme which is the stuff needs to be 
teased out and un- separated and, and, and very strained out that way. Um, and I do want to move us to now our, our, my last question, basically, before I do the formal wrap up as our time is really winding down here. But and it's more really just like a sort of like a directly personal question to you in terms of, you know, we, we've we talked about a lot. And, you know, obviously, you know, you, you co-authored the paper. So you think all these areas are important. But is there a particular area that we've touched on today or that you touched on the paper that, you know, you think is actually, you know, if I if I could ask libertarians to really consider X, like out of all this stuff, like what would it really be like? What, what do you find is very important to you that you think libertarians really need to think more on? I think the status of children is probably the most interesting and underdeveloped area in libertarian thought. Um, And I actually don't do that much work in this area. So it's sort of, I'm telling other people to do (laughs) this for me. Um, there are some, there are some people doing fascinating work on it though. I think Andrew, uh, Andrew Jason Cohen's doing great work in this area. Jess Flanagan, um, who's at university of Richmond. Um, at least she was when I last looked, um, she's doing fast, fascinating work on motherhood. Um, and, and then there's actually like a newer crop of, of sort of libertarian economists who are starting to think about questions of, of children and the family. Um, but I think children are, are really crucial for libertarians to think about precisely because they are a counter to the traditional libertarian sort of assumption that you have rational consenting adults who are capable of making contracts and making decisions about their lives without government involvement. And so children make things much more complicated. And one area that we didn't touch on, which we don't need to, but, um, you know, are, are questions of education, right? What, right? what kinds of obligations do parents have to educate their children? What kinds of educations um, are consistent with a free society? Should mm-hmm. we prevent people from educating their children in authoritarianism or in various forms of unfree kinds of ways? And um, And I think those are questions that we just have not started to answer yet. And so from, from my perspective, I think, yeah, the status of children in a free society, what are the duties that the state owes those children? And what are the places that we think we need to leave open for parents? Um, and how we define parents is, I think, probably one of the next frontiers. And now I'm going to move us on to our formal wrap-up, our, our last official question. In each episode, we want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last word. So let me say, you know, we've talked about a lot. If we can try and bring the question full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question, you know, in some conversations, a summary might be easier. In this case, I think it's a little unfair, but we'll do our best. You know, ultimately, our question today was, how do libertarians approach the family? So for someone coming to this episode today and someone reading the paper, if you wanted to leave them with one or two or just a few takeaways of, well, okay, yeah, I know, how, do, how do libertarians approach the family? What should I take away from this? What, what would that be in your mind? Yeah, I I come back over and over again to the trying to remember that the family is a natural phenomenon with obvious social and political import. It is not ideological. It's not going to fit perfectly into a libertarian bucket. It's not going to fit perfectly into a Marxist bucket. It's not going to fit perfectly into a progressive bucket. So I think libertarians should approach the family with 
an open mind and a sense of um, an appreciation for nuance and an appreciation for complexity and a recognition that the kinds of systems and structures and theories that fit consenting adults probably will not fit the family and that's okay. And so I think we need to be actually willing to, in some cases, move away from certain kinds of commitments that we have in other areas of human life and say, maybe the situation's a little bit more complicated in this particular area, precisely because the family's not a social construct. It's a naturally occurring, regenerating, emergent order uh, that with deep roots in biology. And so we're simply not going to be able to form it to fit our ideological commitments, and we should not. I think that's a great place to leave it. So, so we'll do that now. Lauren Hall, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task. Thanks. It's always a pleasure. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seging. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.